This is the ICO Alert Podcast, Episode 8. I'm your host, Robert Finch, founder of ICO Alert. ICO Alert is the trusted source for analysis of ICOs, otherwise known as initial coin offerings. We maintain a comprehensive list of ICOs on our website at icoalert.com. If you're new to the ICO space or even the blockchain space, don't worry, we've got you covered. Head to start.icoalert.com, where we have helpful introductions to this exciting new world, introductions about ICOs, and introductions about the blockchain space in general. That's start, S-T-A-R-T, dot icoalert.com. My guest today is Eric Huang, the CEO of BlockCat. During the podcast, we'll talk about the BlockCat project, their plans to bring Ethereum smart contracts to the masses, how the recent parity wall attack occurred, and more. Without further ado, let's get to it. One thing to make note of before uh, you jump into this episode, generally our audio quality is very good and I pride myself on the quality of the audio in this podcast. Uh, unfortunately for this episode, we had a couple technical difficulties that we discovered after the podcast, uh, so we weren't actually recording from our high quality mic. Uh, with that being said, uh, I still think the audio quality is decent and I hope that you will still give it a listen. It's a great podcast, lots of great info. Thanks again to Eric Huang from BlockCat for being on board. Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here, Ralph. Yeah, thanks Thanks for uh, taking the time to come on. So BlockCat is pretty interesting to me. Uh, I've done a lot of research about it. I read your white paper, looked in your website, but I'm sure there are people out there who aren't familiar. Um, can you let them know what your platform is and what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, so a big problem with Ethereum smart contracts is that they hold all of this power, um, but it's completely inaccessible to like the everyday user. you got to have both the programming know-how and the skills in order to actually make anything happen. What we're trying to do essentially is to try and put that power in the hands of the everyday user where we will write the contracts on their behalf and then they will be able to use it just with a few clicks of like a web interface instead. Uh, okay, very cool. So it reminds me a lot, I'm not sure, have you heard of the, uh, the app called Shake, Shake Law? No, I haven't heard of it before. Okay, so it's kind of like, uh, it's trying to accomplish something similar, where essentially like you could go in and make a contract with anybody. So if you're like hiring a freelancer, you could go in and just kind of fill in the blanks and uh, make a contract without a lawyer. And it seems like you guys are kind of trying to do something similar, um, but but also totally different since it's smart contracts and not typical, you know, old-fashioned written and signed contracts. Um, could you give me some examples of... of what your smart contracts will do or which smart contracts will be available? Like, are you trying to replace lawyers kind of like Shake Law was doing, or are you strictly trying to open up some of the smart contract functionalities of Ethereum to everybody? Right. Great question. Um, I would say right now our primary target demographic is like the everyday user with everyday tasks. So I'm thinking things like you want to split a payment for pizza with a bunch of friends. You know, typically you'd have to like arrange, oh, some people have cash, oh, that some people don't have cash on them. Maybe they can do like PayPal and it becomes a whole mess. But with a BlockCat smart contract, what we can do is that it becomes really easy. You write up everything you need within the smart contract and everybody just puts in their piece and it all gets combined and sent back to you. We also like to look at some of the more ambitious use cases as well. Um, 
something, as you might know a lot, is people like to run these kinds of crowdfunding campaigns using smart contracts. And that's something we'll be looking into supporting as well. Okay. And will that be the actual smart contract for ICOs? Like, are you referencing ICOs when you say crowdfunding or something else? I am, yeah. To to an extent, of course. Of course, there's only so much you can do with kind of like a one-size-fits-all template. But I think we could go a long way in making sure everything's standardized and secure. Right. Yeah. And I noticed on your website, uh, you mentioned, you know, crowdfunding. Um, I saw that you mentioned uh, prediction markets, like if uh, you wanted to integrate with an actual prediction market, I assume. Um, the question I had, like revolving around that, there were some other use cases you gave, like voting and the ability to, you know, have a, a transparent voting system. Are you guys trying to be um, kind of like the smart contract layer, the smart contract company that's going to provide these secure audited smart contracts to other crypto companies and businesses? Or are you going to be strictly consumer focused? I am thinking we're a bit of both. Um, I can I can kind of see there's kind of like the consumer block hat, which is, you know, very UI focused. But we've also thrown around the idea of supporting like an internal API that would allow other companies and businesses to interface with our contracts directly if they wanted to integrate with our platform. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I know you had mentioned the uh, like payment splitting. And when I read that on your website for the first time, even before we had talked about doing a podcast, I was like, oh, finally, because when we first launched ICO Alert, and we launched the reports, and we used to charge for them, now they're totally free. Um, but when we did, I had a researcher who was, uh, or I guess, somebody basically aggregating a bunch of data, because they're not really doing a ton of research. Um, but going out, and, and we needed a way to do a trustless payment split. And it took me like a week and a half to find a good <laughs> contract to, to actually go in, and then I had to test it. And I'm a, a front-end developer, so I, I'm really not familiar with you know Solidity, and I know a little bit of JavaScript, so it helped there, but it, it took forever. So if BlockCat had existed then, it, it would have made my life a lot easier. So it's cool to see somebody addressing it. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was where the token comes into all this. So it's called the, the cat token, correct? Yes, that's yes. correct. So why do you need a token for all of this? Right, so the token actually ended up being a very crucial part of the BlockCat platform, um, mostly in terms of the added functionality that the ERC-20 specification gives us. Um, some of the most important pieces to that end is that the ERC-20 spec gives us the ability to make allowances, which in short is essentially like authorizing somebody else to transfer your tokens on their behalf. So what that looks like is that as part of the whole BlockCat payment workflow, um, the user first makes an allowance to the BlockCat platform saying, hey, you can use 10 of my cat. And that kind of acts as like their working balance when they're interacting with BlockCat smart contracts. So then on our end, once they've made that allowance, it's very easy for us to collect fees and payments because we can just pull out however much cat we need to settle the fee whenever we need it. This is really cool because in, in this scenario, the user could change their mind at any time and say, you know what, I'm, you know, I've, I've done what I need. I, I want my cat back. They don't need to trust in us to return their tokens to them, but instead they can just clear whatever remaining allowance they have and just know that their tokens were always held by them until we actually needed to pay the fee. 
Oh, okay. So is it strictly like the fee that you're using to, cause I want to talk a little bit more about your marketplace and a little bit where yep. users can kind of come in and create their own contracts and put them up for sale. Is it strictly just that payment mechanism or uh, I guess the root of my question is, are you able to create a smart contract that, you know, uses Ethereum rather than your blockhead token? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, definitely the marketplace is like the second major component there. Um, because as part of the whole design of the marketplace, we kind of have a setup where CAP becomes kind of like the lifeblood of the underlying protocol that will make sure that the marketplace is safe and secure for everybody to use. And how, how that kind of plays in is that um, intrinsically, we need to track a lot of metrics in terms of, you know, where where are our payments being sent to, transferred from, and so on. And inherently, that's actually something that's not possible on the Ethereum blockchain. For example, if I wanted to ask, like, give me all of the transactions that involve this particular address. In completely through the raw blockchain itself, that's not a question that can be answered. You can use a third-party service like Etherscan, who has aggregated all of the blockchain data and presented in a way that allows you to do that. But with ERC-20, using the event logs that are emitted, we can very quickly search the blockchain for all of those transactions and identify exactly, like, I want only the ones that involve these addresses. So where that kind of ties into play altogether is, of course, in the marketplace, in the staking mechanism specifically. So how we kind of see that working is that the marketplace fundamentally needs to be safe and secure. And there needs to be a good solution in making sure that nobody puts out bad or untested code out there that people end up using. And how we kind of see that working is that developers, when they write their contracts and they say, hey, I want to put it on your marketplace, they have to essentially put in a deposit in the form of cat and they this deposit is held and they have the potential to lose it in the event that their code is found to be malicious or anything like that oh, okay so yeah. that's kind of like a, an incentive to not try to scam people through you know putting out a malicious smart contract yeah absolutely and it eff effectively provides like financial barriers to anybody who would also want to like clog up or otherwise spam the marketplace with a bunch of fluff right since yeah yeah and do you do you have an idea of like and it's okay if you haven't figured this out yet what the amount of cat will be like am i am i gonna have to put up two hundred dollars worth of cat two thousand dollars worth of cat twenty dollars worth what will it be to to submit a smart contract yeah that's something we've been throwing around a lot i don't think we've come up with a concrete number yet but you know we're kind of aiming for it to be both accessible in that it's not like a huge financial burden on somebody, but also at the level where it's not so small that it's insignificant. Um, kind of how I see it going is that maybe what might work is essentially, you know how like when you download an app on the app store, it lists you all of like the permissions that an app uses. Like it has access to your camera, it has access to your phone, has access to your contacts, that sort of thing. Right. 
Yeah, I was kind of thinking that maybe with the marketplace, we could do kind of a similar system where when somebody puts out their contract, they have to say, okay, this contract can send Ether on your behalf. It can transact CAT on your behalf and kind of use that as sort of like a points-based system to determine, so what, what is the risk overall if this contract were to go bad? and kind of scale the the stake, essentially, based on that amount. Oh, okay, that's very cool. Yeah, because it's interesting. I mean, you know, even if the, the fee to put a smart contract up was $2,000 worth of CAT, um, if you're able to steal with that malicious smart contract, like <laughs> $20,000 or $200,000 worth of CAT, it may be worth the risk for some of these scammers to try it. Um, and, and just so we're clear with everybody out there, the marketplace we're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, is essentially um, a platform within BlockCat where... And anybody who's experienced with Solidity code, which is the code that Ethereum smart contracts run on, uh, can go in, they can submit their own smart contract and sort of put it up for sale so that everybody else can use it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's spot on. Okay. And so who will actually be auditing um, that smart contract code when, like, let's say I want to go and I, I put up a smart contract for sale. I, I put in my, you know, my uh, cat tokens as my sort of deposit to, you know, uh, as my incentive not to, to try to publish malicious code. Who's auditing it? Is it you? Is it another security company? How does that all work? Right. So starting out first, we will be manually approving kind of like the first round of the marketplace smart contracts. Um, in the future, we would like to explore kind of like third-party auditing on that, whether that's kind of initiated on BlockCat's behalf or we request that anybody who submits code gets it audited by a third party prior to submission. Haven't really decided details on that yet, but there's actually a, a third piece of the puzzle there, which is that we're, kind, we're thinking about leveraging kind of like a crowdsourced verification model there, which is the other side of the staking coin there. And in short, how it kind of goes down is that users who are experienced in reading Solidity code and know what they're looking for can go to these contracts that have been submitted and they, since the code will be published, they will be able to read it through, determine if it's okay, and they'll essentially be able to, to vote with a staked portion of CAT to say, yes, I think this contract is okay, or no, I don't think this is a contract is okay and here's why. Okay. And yeah, and one of the cool things that we're doing as part of that is that um, anybody who, of course, votes falsely or attempts to skew the vote will lose their stake, essentially, so that there's financial incentive there to tell the truth. And also, everybody who votes correctly will be entitled to a portion of the fees that that contract ends up generating in its lifetime. Uh, okay, that's very interesting. So who will have the final say there? Because just to play devil's advocate, if I'm trying to publish malicious code to steal a bunch of people's money when they use my smart contract, I can theoretically make a bunch of accounts and go in and you know put up my, my cat deposit and say, oh yeah, this contract is legit. And if it's totally up to the community, then theoretically somebody could kind of fudge those results. So you mentioned like if the code is then found to be malicious or they tend to, they're trying to skew the vote in some way, they would lose their deposit. But who would be making the decision uh, on whether or not they're actually trying to skew the vote? Right, yeah. Um, that's definitely something that requires a bit of thought to that extent. Um, probably the simplest first pass kind of method is just, you know, 
you you determine the result of whether the contract is okay or not based on over time you determine you know this contract's been behaving pretty good and you know it's been several months and nothing major's popped up then everybody who voted incorrectly in that case is discarded um but yeah definitely d ascertaining the whole security of it all is a, a bit of an open question um how we kind of see it playing out is that we essentially have like a time-locked release model on these contracts. So, you know, when contract day one, it gets deployed, you know, it's, it, it's going to be extremely locked down. Um, some of the things we can do to this end is, you know, we can restrict if, if it's a contract that handles ether values then we can restrict it, say, you know, you're only allowed to transact as much as 0.1 Ether. That way, if anything goes wrong, the damage is minimal. And then as time goes on, you know, we we slowly relax those restrictions until it can be fully integrated into the platform. Okay, yeah, because the main concern that I have looking at this is that there's still, and this may be an unavoidable problem, or at least a problem that nobody's thought of a creative solution for yet, but it's, it's the problem that, with smart contracts, if you're not technical and can't audit your own code, you still have to trust someone else, whether it's BlockCat or a third-party auditing firm. You still have to trust them that, that they know what they're doing, first of all, and then second uh, second of all, um, that uh, that person is not the malicious actor or working in tandem with the malicious actor uh, to try and you know manipulate the results or try to steal your funds all, uh, in the end. So... Um, do you guys have a solution for that problem or will there still be some kind of trust component to this? Because that seems to be sort of a question, sort of this uh, unanswered question or elephant in the room when it comes to smart contracts in general, that there are all these users, really the greater uh, majority of users that don't have technical experience and still have to use or want to use these smart contracts, but can't be 100% certain without relying on somebody else that they're actually secure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's a big problem. Fundamentally, you know, there's always some trust component somewhere down the chain even if you can bury it under several layers it's always still there um, i think it's definitely still an open problem and it's not really one that we're trying to tackle per se um, having said that you know you could you can kind of look at the wider programming community not really just in the realm of smart contracts but in software code in general and i think it's still even an open problem then so it could be a while before we see a solution to that one. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you don't know, you know, when you're using Windows or Mac or whatever OS or whatever application you download, whether it's a wallet client for Ethereum or, or some other cryptocurrency, you really don't know that it's 100% secure unless you, you're the one that went in and audited it and you're sure that, you know, you audited it properly. So that's an interesting kind of existential question for all of crypto. Um, yeah. But it's, it's very interesting. I want to bring something up. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the recent parody hack uh, but I wanted to kind of explain for all of our listeners who aren't familiar. Um, so Parity was a big, uh, sort of a well-known wallet application where people could store their Ethereum, they could store their Ethereum tokens, their ERC-20 tokens. Um, and it was discovered recently in the, in the past couple weeks that there was actually a bug in their multi-sig wallets. So a multi-sig wallet is a wallet where if I want to set it up with a couple other people, you know, uh, let's say it's a two of three wallet, two out of the three people in order to send funds have to agree and, and sign the transaction and say, uh, yes, we agree. We want to send these funds. So it's a multi-signature wallet. But somebody found a bug in the, these multi-sig wallets 
uh, that essentially allowed anyone to take control of any uh, multi-sig wallet that was created through Parity. And this was a bug in Parity's code. Parity had been uh, using this multi-sig code for a significant amount of time. But essentially the way it worked from a technical standpoint was uh, a malicious actor could go in, they could use the init wallet function, which is like initializing the wallet, even after the wallet had been created, and they could essentially make themselves the only owner of the wallet and then drain the funds completely. So somebody, nobody knows who it is yet, of course, uh, maybe Interpol will discover who it is in 10 or 15 years, who knows, uh, more than likely not. Um, but a hacker went in, they stole 150,000 Ether, which at the time was about $30 million. Um, and then the rest of it, they, they would have stolen uh, a lot more north of uh, $100 million, but a group of white hat hackers, uh, so good hackers, people who hack you know, for the benefit of society, the benefit of other people, went in and actually exploited that bug at the same time, or around the same time, the black hat hacker was trying to steal the funds. They secured all the funds, and then they, uh, as of last week, I believe, have distributed all of the funds back to the people who would have had them stolen. But it's really interesting. Um, I wanted to bring up a point from uh, Zeppelin Solutions developer Santiago Palladino, who wrote uh, a blog post on Medium about the hack, uh, saying, this attack, however, referencing the parody attack, of course, makes clear that a set of best practices and standards is needed in the Ethereum ecosystem to ensure that these coding patterns are implemented effectively and securely. Otherwise, the most innocent looking bug can have disastrous consequences. And it kind of brings me back to this whole BlockHat scenario of, you know, a BlockHat contract could run for a year, two years, six months, whatever amount of time it may be, and then somebody could find some kind of obscure bug that was either left there intentionally by the creator or um, was kind of an accident. Uh, do you guys sort of see yourselves as creating this series of best practices with like uh, the way you audit these contracts? Or if not, or even if you do, how do you think that this set of best practices for uh, creating and auditing smart contracts will kind of form within the community? Yeah, that's a great point. And the parity multi-sig attack was, is, is really the best case example of how these such an innocent typo can cause major, major financial damage. I definitely believe that, you know, kind of the smart contract scene and the cryptocurrency scene is really like a wild west right now. I almost liken it back to the days of like, you know, DOS computers, where, you know, you had basically full control of your hardware, you know, there was no memory virtualization, you could literally just go right anywhere in your RAM and trash a kernel or something like that. So I kind of see the smart contract scene evolving in kind of a similar way, where slowly we're going to start, you know, locking things down, setting up these, you know, agreed best practices. Um, I know that um, Christian Reitwiesner, the creator of Solidity, has been making significant efforts in kind of improving how the code itself can maintain its integrity. Um, you know, there's a lot of design decisions there that can be done at that level in order to ensure these kind of things don't happen. Like the parity multisig attack, that is something that could have been prevented if Solidity functions were made private by default. Effectively, that would would have locked out outside access from calling the function. To begin with, yes, yeah, um, functions in Solidity by default are public, so anybody can call them. 
and that's really what 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 was at the core of that attack was that you know no visibility modifier was specified on it, so it just defaulted to public. Wow. So that's do you think that's a deeper problem with Solidity then? And for people who aren't super tech savvy, that essentially means you know with a, a smart contract there are different functions that you can call, whether it's a withdraw function or a deposit function, different um, sort of abilities of a smart contract that you have to call or execute. Uh, do you think, Eric, that that's a flaw in Solidity, or was that a flaw? Uh, in parodies of implementation, or maybe both? It's a bit of both, really. You know, of course, the developers writing the code are like your first line of defense. You don't want them to make a mistake at any cost. But in the in the event they do make a mistake or oversight, it's it's great to have the language, you know, to have your back, to be able to catch you when you fall. In that case, I definitely feel like it was a bit of an oversight in Solidity, and I'm not entirely sure what their design decisions behind making that choice was. Maybe it was just the kind of thing that ne was never really too much thought put in as to the consequences of having it default to being public and open. Um, but that's just part of the growing pains, essentially. And in particular, with such sensitive financial transactions that Solidity Code handles, I definitely feel like we should be airing more on the side of, you know, lock everything down by default. And, you know, if you want to open these gates, you got to do it explicitly. Yeah, I totally agree. And it was, the whole thing was pretty ironic because, you know, generally with a multi-sig wallet, a, a wallet that requires multiple signatures to send a transaction, um, generally it's seen as more secure. And in this case, in the case of parity, if you didn't enable multi-sig, if you just had a single signature wallet, uh, like most wallets are, you were totally fine. But it was the multi-sig wallets, the people who, in theory, were trying to get more security actually had less. So I think it was kind of this crazy moment. Um, I, I know, it, I guess it got a lot of press within the community, but outside of the community, uh, sort of in the mainstream media, I'm not sure it got a ton of press, um, which is probably a good thing for, for the markets, at least. Um, but it was interesting just like talking amongst, you know, other friends and, and colleagues that I have in the crypto space. And I had actually referred them to Parity and said, oh yeah, Parity's great. It's super secure. You know, while you're waiting for your ledger, your, your hardware wallet to arrive, you know, go ahead and use Parity. You'll be fine. And fortunately they didn't set up a multi-sig wallet. They just had the, the standard wallet. Um, but, but it's really kind of wild. It was this sort of a big, oh shit moment, I think for people like, oh wow, the thing that we thought was super security actually isn't. What else could be insecure or unsecure that 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 we think is secure? Like, do you see this being a problem with any other wallet implementations? Do you think my Ether wallet could be at risk, or do you think this was strictly limited to to that parity multi-sig wallet contract? Yeah, that, that is a really good point, and we we have blockout. We we definitely had our moment there. Um, if I remember correctly, it was literally only probably two or three days after our token sale had launched and we were actually storing all of our funds in a parity multi-sig oh my goodness as well yeah and it was probably we were extremely both lucky and proactive at the same time um i remember we i, I got a message on my phone early early in the morning and it was uh, my cto wade he messaged me and he said we need to pull our funds now <laughs> and you know we, <laughs> the message we you never on. want to see yeah and it, it was the most painful thing because you know computer i turned my computer off at night so i turn it on and parodies you know i'm i'm thinking 3000 blocks give me uh 10 15 minutes <laughs> And, you know, we were just sitting there twiddling our thumbs until we could pull out. Thankfully, 
we managed to extract all of our ether safely and wow. no so, damage was done there. So that was just um, sort of a you guys getting lucky, essentially. I mean, obviously you were very proactive and got it in time, but it, lucky for you guys, the attacker or even one of the whitehead hackers hadn't gone into your your contract yet, I guess? Do you think it was because the contract was so new or just, just a lucky that they picked others first? If I were to guess, they were probably doing it in terms of descending value and it being only one or two days into our token sale. We weren't that up there yet. Um, but the most ironic part to me, I think, is that had we just kept all the Ether in our token sale contract itself, it would have been more secure than after we put it in the multi-sig. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's but, it's fascinating. It's so ironic that I mean the the thing we all thought was so secure actually was you know less security than keeping it <laughs> just in the normal contract. Yeah, but to back to your question about like other wallet implementations, um, I know that right after the attack happened, Open Zeppelin they did another full audit of their multi-sig wallet implementation, and they declared that it did not suffer from the same vulnerability and that it was still safe to use. Um, but, you know, the risk is always there. The question remains, you know, like, what what could be the next major service that everybody uses that gets hit with an attack like this? You know, could it be ENS? Could it be something else? You never know when these things could happen, and it's a very valid risk. I was part of the smart contract scene. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting also with things like ENS, and if listeners aren't familiar, it's the Ethereum name service. So essentially allows you to register a name, you lock up some Ether in a contract to register like ericwong.eth, and then anybody can send Ether or uh, Ethereum tokens to ericwong.eth instead of having to, you know, copy and paste this long, um, like, I don't know how many digits it is, but the this multi-digit, you know, a bunch of random letters and numbers, which is your uh, public address. Um but it, it's really interesting because with something like the ENS, in theory, an attacker would wait until, you know, a tremendous amount of funds have poured into these contracts, like with exchange.eth going for several thousand uh, Ether. Um, actually, it may have been even more than that. I believe it was more than a million dollars uh, was locked up in a contract for that name. Um, so in theory, an attacker would kind of sit on the sidelines, wait for a lot of these names to get super popular, wait for maybe the value of Ether to go up, and then attack um, then sort of try to exploit some of these names. So it, it, it just kind of, that's uh, less of a question and more of just a statement. It's just very interesting um, that uh, something like this may not be exploited immediately. They may actually wait strategically uh, until more money is there so that they can actually steal more funds. Um, but it'll be interesting to see kind of how things progress, how we get to like uh, Santiago Palladino from Zeppelin Solutions was saying, um, this set of best practices and standards that's really needed in the ecosystem. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, going back to kind of getting away from this, you know, dark cloud of hacks <laughs> and, you know, parody and exploits and all this stuff. Um, yeah. You mentioned, or I guess on your website, you have this kind of drag and drop builder. Um, so somebody can theoretically go in, they can say, you know, I want these three pieces of, of a smart contract and they can drag and drop and create their own smart contract. Could you talk a little bit about how that works and like what those different pieces they're dragging and dropping would actually be or represent? Sure. Yeah. So we kind of call this phase three or like the stretch goal of BlockCat, where phase one is like the pre-deployed contract templates that anybody can use. Phase two is the marketplace. We see the visual smart contract builder as phase three. So with this, you get an interface, you know, that kind of looks like blocks and pieces that represent different parts of 
smart contract code. Maybe you got a block for sending Ether to somebody. You got a block to do a condition check and that kind of thing. And you kind of piece it together to build your own smart contract. And we think it's kind of the next logical evolution in the scene because we, at some point, of course, have to move away from this technical programmer-centric way of building these contracts. And we have to put that power and make it accessible to anybody to use. And how we kind of see that working is that the smart contract builder will give you, of course, all of the fundamental pieces of a smart contract to piece together. So, you know, you'll have access to different addresses. You'll be able to do simple loops, create your own functionality as part of that. But we also see it kind of being the glue that ties together kind of the whole Blockcat ecosystem. Because now, instead of just composing simple pieces, you'll be able to compose together entire other smart contracts as well. So kind of a simple example of that is that you could take like a delayed payment smart contract that is in the works for Blockcat, um, which essentially lets you say, I want to send Ether to this person, but I don't want them to be able to withdraw it until a certain amount of time has passed. This is pretty cool for, say, giving like a birthday present or giving somebody a trust fund for when they turn 18. Um, and then you could say, but hey, I want this to be spread across, say, like my three grandchildren instead. So they take a payment splitter smart contract as well. And they essentially use the visual builder to connect pieces together. So, you know, the ether goes into the delayed payment. It comes out and it passes through the payment splitter to end up at all of its destinations. And we think that's going to be really powerful once you're able to leverage a lot of community built pieces and really start to build cool functionality out. Yeah, that's very cool. And presumably then, I mean, you mentioned, you know, uh, it may be hard to actually have a Blockcat contract, at least initially, uh, for something like an ICO where, you know, you need very specific terms like the starting block and, you know, which addresses it's getting split to and the total amount available and the min cap and the hard cap and all these different uh, sort of criteria uh, that need to be met. But presumably, I mean, do you think that, that you could actually add those as drag and drop options for a contract in your smart contract builder? And kind of be the de facto standard for ICO smart contracts? Yeah, yeah, that would actually be really cool. Essentially, you could have like, you know, what kind of token do you want? Do you want one that can be minted later? Or is it like a one-time distribution? You take that piece and you put it in, you know, you determine what kind of funding model do you want? Do you want a price that is remaining flat the entire duration of the sale or do you want the price to increase as the sale goes on and you take that piece and you put it in and you kind of mix and match until you have your finished product that would be really really awesome way to build out these token sales yeah definitely i mean the drag and drop builder to me seems like the most powerful at least from like a, a user facing standpoint like the most powerful application and i think you kind of alluded to that like the marketplace is great and like you said it's kind of phase two out of three phases where the third phase is uh, the drag and drop builder and the marketplace to me seems kind of like that intermediary like oh uh, maybe you don't want to use the drag and drop even after it's released or before it's released you know it's a really convenient way to do things um in theory once the drag and drop builder is out could i go in 
you know, come up with a really creative smart contract that combines 10 existing smart contracts and two others to do some kind of function that, that people need. Could I take that, that contract that I just made in the drag and drop builder and sell it on the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. That's some, definitely something we have in mind. And it really revitalized the marketplace, I think, to be able to gain so many more users building out cool functionality in terms of that. And kind of the way I see it is that the the previous two phases are pretty integral to the success of the smart contract builder, in my opinion, because we need the fundamental contracts out there from phase one in order to kind of establish like the base simple functionality, like the payment splitting and all of that. And then the marketplace is crucial for both providing a lot of extra pieces that people can now use, but also to kind of establish kind of like the Blockat standard API for these kind of contracts, which is going to be really crucial in terms of actually being able to join together the functionality in the builder, since as long as you know that they conform to some base agreed way of communicating, then that's what really makes it easy to put together. Yeah, that's very cool. And it, it just occurred to me that we didn't, we touched a little bit on the marketplace and how it actually works. Like if I wanted to publish a smart contract, I put up some cat uh, and kind of lock it away as my incentive not to publish malicious code. But how does the whole fee function of this work? Because we've talked a lot about, um, you know, being able to sell these. Is this something where if I want to buy a smart contract for somebody else, am I paying a set one-time fee? Am I paying a small percentage of the amount of ether that goes through my contract? How does that all work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the fee model is going to be determined kind of largely on a per-contract basis, um, and it'll heavily depend on what is most natural to that specific contract. Um, but the base model we have is kind of like a one-time deployment fee. So effectively, a um, good example of this is like, say, you set up uh, a delayed payment. So in that case, you'll pay the one-time upfront cost to actually deploy it, and then future interactions with it are free from the Blockat perspective, but you'll still be paying transaction costs to the blockchain. And we, we're thinking we'll adapt this and adjust it as we need in order to make sure that the user experience is as smooth as possible. Okay, very cool. Yeah, that's a that's a really cool way to look at it. I mean, I think with things like this, as they grow and as they develop it, there are kind of different logical fee uh, structures for different contracts, depending on what they are. So it'll be very cool to, to see how those develop as uh, time goes on. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about also, and, and we had a lot of requests for this. We've done <laughs> seven of these podcasts now. Now we're on the eighth. And I kept getting emails, hey, can you ask them about, you know, the viability of their business, how they're going to keep uh, the business running in the long term, as well as a couple other questions that we'll get to in just a sec. Um, but let's start with that first one. So Black Hat, obviously, you know, you have employees, you have to take a salary, you have overhead with an office, presumably with, you know, other expenses. Um, you're doing an ICO, of course, to raise funds, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but how do you plan after this ICO is done, after, you know, eventually your funds have run out, how do you plan to keep the business running in the long term? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I am happy to say that we've hit our minimum funding cap. So at this point, even in the worst case, the core block cap functionality is essentially locked in. And we have enough runway to 
make it happen yeah, at the very least, even in like the worst case where we gain zero profit in the near future. Um, but of course, you know, the question is what happens when that runway dries out? Um, the way we've kind of got it lined up in terms of our roadmap is that at the point where we have, you know, the initial public release of phase one and fees are starting to roll in, at that kind of point, we still have about six to six months to about a year of runway to work on, where at that point we would be focusing on, okay, so we've got the core product out now. Um, now we can determine, make some projections, you know, determine are we going to be profitable, are we going to be sustainable? And we have that kind of nice buffer time in order to really assess our situation. And in that time, if we determine, you know, we didn't really quite reach the user base that we need to really sustain ourselves solely from the fees that we're collecting, um, at that point, we would be looking into like VC funding or other alternate sources in order to keep us going. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. It's it's really interesting just with the, the ICO space in general because it is also new and a lot of these people are raising money to sustain themselves for, you know, at least a year, maybe a couple of years with some people raising, you know, bank or raising an obscene amount of money, like more than $100 million. Like they're good for, for the long, long term. Um, but it's interesting because people ask the question, you know, to me specifically running ICO alert, how many of these ICOs are successful? And you can judge that by a couple different metrics. Like if you judge it by strictly uh, how many you know, how much funds did they raise? Did they hit their min cap? Did they hit their hard cap? Uh, then then a lot of them are successful. But when we look at sort of the long term, like the, the core business um, that, that these ICOs are trying to build or the service they're trying to provide, it, it's really going to take a while for us to determine what the failure rate or what the success rate is uh, to look at it as kind of the glass half full side of things, what the success rate is um, of these ICOs, because it's going to take a couple of years for either the funding to run out or, or the platform to just not gain the user base that they need or for them to release the actual, you know, finished version of their product. So just as kind of a note, it'll be really interesting to see how all that plays out and what the success rate uh, ends up being. Um, talking about your ICO funds, you mentioned, you know, you hit your min cap. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, your ICO is running right now, for those who don't know. Um, you can go to blockcat.io, B-L-O-C-K-C-A-T.io to check it out, see how much they've raised, contribute yourself. Um, but could you talk a little bit, Eric, about you know how much you've raised, what was your min cap, um, and what is your hard cap? Yep. So um, I believe currently we're sitting around probably 6,200 Ether at the time of this. Um, our min cap was hit within the first 30 minutes or so of our token sale. Wow. Actually. Yeah, um, I believe we can't remember the ether values at the time because of price fluctuations. But we set our min cap to about four hundred thousand dollars US, and that's kind of what we projected we'd need to, at the minimum, finish the core product of Blockcat. Okay, great. And uh, what number are you at right now as of this recording? Um, yeah, I believe that's about 6,000 Ether or so. Okay, so that's what, like one point, at least at the current price, like what, 1.2, <laughs> 1.3 $1. <laughs> Yeah, just okay. about. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that, that sounds like then, uh, based on the way you were describing it, that you should have a, a pretty long uh, runway then to continue building out these features. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely extremely happy with what we've got so far because it means that we have a comfortable buffer in order to accommodate for any unexpected circumstances. Definitely. And it's interesting also from like a funding standpoint, you know, a couple months ago when we had the ICO craze, people were kind of throwing money at anything and everything. And now, you know, even though we're seeing the amount of money that ICOs are raising every month actually increase over the course of the year with in July, I believe more than 500 and I think it was $540 million was raised in ICOs. Um, the amount of money each individual ICO is raising is actually going down in terms of the average just because there are so many now. So to, to be able to raise more than a million dollars in this climate with, you know, on some days, 10 ICOs, 12 ICOs launching through IC, like uh, that we're tracking on ICO alert, it, it is a pretty big accomplishment to still be able to raise that amount. It shows some community support. So it's very cool to see. Um, kind of building off of that, one of the other questions that uh, some users were emailing, they, they really wanted me to touch on with, with all these podcasts, you know, what will you be using the funds for? I think you may have already answered that. You're, you're you know, using it as runway to build it out. Is Are those funds strictly being used for, you know, salaries, for overhead, or, or is some of that going to marketing? Could you kind of talk about that breakdown? Yeah, sure. Um, we outline a brief, rough estimate of the funding breakdown. Um, of course, everything is a little flexible to an extent to adjust for wiggle room, but we kind of budgeted about 60% or so would be going to developer salaries. And we budgeted about 10% of that towards marketing, advertising, and other avenues. Um, and kind of the rest is split up in various proportions for legal fees, administration fees, and a big chunk of that is actually going to be reserved for possible security auditing by third-party firms. Okay, very cool. Yeah, and I think that's definitely necessary uh, since the auditing will be a, a big portion of it, so it's good to hear that you guys are you know, considering doing that uh, allocation. Um, those were, were kind of the core questions that people were asking, and it's, it's really interesting, you know, keeping the business running long-term, what you'll be using the funds for. Um, I'd like to kind of take this this last section of the podcast to allow you to talk about anything we haven't addressed. So if there's like a, a part of the, the platform you want to talk about or a partnership, uh, whatever it may be, uh, I'd like to kind of give you the floor and, and allow you to talk uh, about anything in particular that uh, we haven't covered already. Sure. Yeah. So probably the most exciting piece of news I have is that um, in the next short while, um, we're aiming for before our token sale closes, but we will actually be putting out the very first iteration of the BlockCap platform. Um, ever since we secured our minimum funding cap, we we told ourselves, you know, we we've got what we need, and you know, we 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 could spend our time twiddling our thumbs, or we could you know really jump into action. So over the past few weeks, we've been hard at work at it, but we've got something we're calling the public alpha that we will be putting out shortly. It's going to be kind of like a miniaturized cut down version of what we envision the core platform to be. But I think, especially in this scene where there's so many of these new companies popping up, doing token sales, and then, you know, potentially just fading out and fizzling or disappearing outright. Um, I think it's absolutely crucial that, you know, we show the community, hey, we, we can do what we promised we would do and that we can actually deliver something. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think a, a great way to, to kind of end it. Um, I'd like to just wrap up then by talking a little bit about your ICO details. So we did talk, uh, your ICO is running now. When does it end? How long do people have to, to be a part of this? 
It ends approximately on August 16th, but that'll depend on how fast blocks are being mined. Shouldn't vary by more than a couple hours, though. Okay, great. So everybody has until August 16th to check it out. Um, Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, if we could end, tell people where they can learn more about BlockCat. Yeah, sure. Um, our website, blockcat.io, is the first source of information. You can read our white paper, check out what we got up there. Um, of course, if you guys have any questions that you want to ask directly, we have a Discord channel that is open for anybody to join. Our team is on there constantly answering questions, so whatever concerns you have. Um, of course, you can always email us as well at team at blockcat.io with any questions as well. Awesome. That's great. Well, uh, Eric, I really appreciate your time, and uh, best of luck with the rest of your ICO. Thank you, Rob. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. If you'd like to request someone to be on the podcast, tweet us at ICO Alert and let us know. We're trying to cover all the ICOs. That includes past ICOs, present ICOs, and ICOs that are, of course, happening in the future. Thank you again. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to get updates when we publish a new episode. Also, don't forget to check out ICOalert.com for our in-depth analysis of upcoming ICOs, as well as our comprehensive list of every initial coin offering. I'm your host, Robert Finch, and I'll be back next week or sooner with a brand new episode.